0: Hello and welcome to the JNM podcast. This is a podcast where we talk about movies, TV shows, and anything in between. If you are listening for the first time, welcome. And if you're coming back, welcome back. Hope you're doing well. Uh, Before I get to any details, I would like to welcome back my guest, Oscar Martinez.
1: Thanks for having me, Jeanette. Uh, Excited to be here talking about Doom.
0: Yeah, today we are going to continue with our Greg Frazier series uh, with the 2021 epic sci-fi film, Dune. Now, this is like the first part. It's called Dune Part One, uh, just for reference. There's Uh, more. Yes, there is more. (laughs) Uh, So the movie is directed by Denis Villeneuve. and written by Venuve uh, along with John Spates and Eric Roth. So the log line is uh, set in a far future. The film follows Paul Atreides as his family, the noble house Atreides, as they are thrust into a war for the deadly and inhospitable desert planet Arrakis. I received information from Wikipedia, IMDb, The Credits, YM Cinema Magazine, Go Gold Derby or Gold Derby. It's like a YouTube channel and the Hollywood Reporter.
1: Yep. And the cast is uh we have Timothy Chalamet as Paul Atreides. He was in other great movies such as Call Me By Your Name, which is where I first saw him. Yeah. Lady Bird. Little woman in the French dispatch. Yeah, everybody knows Timothy. (laughs) Uh, (laughs)
0: Everyone knows that peach scene.
1: (laughs) Everyone knows the peach scene. You either love him or hate him. You know, (laughs) he's a very divisive guy. I personally, I'm a big fan. I follow him on Instagram. I like all his pictures. So, yeah, Timothy, if you're hearing this, let's work together. (laughs) (laughs) Then there's Rebecca Ferguson as Lady Jessica, Paul's mother. He's in other movies like Mission Impossible, Rogue Nation and Fallout, The Girl on the Train and the White Queen, which is a TV miniseries. Then we have another honk, Oscar Isaac, as Duke Leto Atreides, Paul's father. You've seen him in Inside Llewyn Davis, Ex Machina, Star Wars The Force Awakens series, and recently in Moon Knight, which I, I started but never finished uh
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think that was the same thing with Mira. I think he watched one episode and then hasn't um but we've been doing that for the last like uh Marvel TV shows. Like we just watch yeah. one and then we don't really go into it.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm sure I'll, I saw a meme where that like Moon Knight is the the series that that's the most doable thing like everybody does that where they watch the first few episodes and then they stop watching <laughs> but i like oscar Isaac. i want to support my my guys so i might i might take a look
0: yeah yeah
1: then we have josh brolin as gurney halleck he's the weapon masters for the atreides and his smile looks like a frown there's a scene <laughs> there's a scene where Oscar Isaac's like, smile, Gurney. And he's like, I am smiling. And he's, like, <laughs> like, no. he's hilarious. He's from No Country from Old Men. He's He was uh, Thanos in Avengers and mm-hmm. he was in Sicario and Milk and many other uh, mm-hmm. projects.
0: <laughs> yeah. And he was, uh, he played George W. Bush in W. Um, oh. And it's like a Oliver Stone film. It was okay
1: i've never heard of that one that sounds interesting
0: yeah it was kind of like under the radar i think this was like like 20 i think it was like 2010 or something i know i was like still he was still in the office when it came out i believe where he was about to leave um but mm-hmm. yeah
1: interesting interesting um Cool. Then we have Zendaya as Jenny, who's in this movie for like five minutes. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, she's a young Fremen woman who appears in Paul's visions, and Fremen being uh, a native person from the planet uh, Arrakis mm-hmm. in the movie. Uh, and obviously, she's in uh, Spider-Man: Homecoming. She's she's in the in the Greatest Showman, Shake It Up, and Euphoria. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah she's like in the movie for like a blink of an eye so
0: yeah but I, I think like her her role is like bigger in the second part
1: um yeah
0: yeah
1: i'm sure that uh, which i'm excited about for sure i i started <laughs> the book like before the movie came out i started reading the book and i i only got like a third of the way in so i don't even know from, yeah uh, from that but i'm sure she's a bigger part yeah then we have other appearances uh, from like Stellan Skarsgård, who plays Baron the Baron Harkonnen, which is this scary looking character in the book uh, in the movie. He's like the main antagonist. Um, then we have Dave Bautista, uh like his and who's he who is the Baron Harkonnen's nephew. His name is Beast Ruban Harkonnen. We have Sharon Duncan Brewster who plays Dr. L- uh Liet Kynes. We have Stephen Mc mckinley henderson who's the hawat we have Shang chen who's dr wellington Yue. we have charlotte rampling who plays reverend mother Mohaya.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: um jason momoa duncan idaho and javier bardem who plays stigar another fremen mm-hmm. um, and so i think have,
0: he's the leader of the fremen
1: yeah he's like the ambassador he's the one who like uh, makes contact with with oscar isaac's character the duke um yeah and yeah i mean it's the whole cast is definitely very stellar and and you know you can tell every mm-hmm. character every actor here is bringing out bringing out deep characters like with a lot of backstory like you can just tell that there's a lot of backstory to these characters yes yeah.
0: Mm -hmm. So in terms of backstory, so Dune was originally a 1965 epic sci-fi novel written by Frank Herbert. And before that, it was also uh, published on several magazine articles for a particular like sci-fi magazine. Kind of like think of it as like Mad uh, Magazine or National Lampoon's Magazine. Um, He received the idea of the book by traveling to Florence, Oregon, uh, where the Oregon dunes are located. And he noticed the US Department of Agriculture attempts to place these poverty grasses, it's kind of like prairie uh, grasses, uh, to stabilize the dunes, fearing that it would swallow whole cities, lakes, rivers, and highways. And he also uh, was interested in the idea of the superhero mystique and messiahs. And he believed that feudalism was a natural condition humans fell into where some led and others gave up the responsibility and just followed the orders of whoever is leading Earlier versions of the draft had similarities with T. E. Lawrence, who helped Arab forces in the Arab revolt against the Ottoman Empire, and this was like during like war- World War II, No, sorry, World War One at the time.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, however, he felt that the draft was too straightforward, so he kind of like add more, you know, sci-fi and such to it. And people compared the conflict in Dune to the Middle East uh, with oil, because especially in Afghanistan, like prior to the U.S. trying to work with Afghanistan or, quote, unquote, try to take over Afghanistan, there were other countries like uh, England and I think like Russia for a time and then like also like Prussia and like the Ottoman Empire, like everyone's been was trying to take over Afghanistan and other parts of the Middle East to take over the oil, but they never secede at all. Mm -hmm. And then they just end up leaving, and then like another country would try to take over. So that's kind of what a lot of people feel, that the Fremens are actually Middle Eastern people and that the spice is oil. Um, Mm -hmm. So it garnered awards and created this saga with Herbert writing five sequels while his son uh, would continue the series after his death um, with like another author for a dozen additional novels. Um, So as a result, the rights to adapt the novel, the first novel, had been held by several producers since 1971. Uh, So many believe the novel was unfilmable due to its complex storyline and design and just trying to create all these like ships and technologies and even creatures for this uh, film. In the 70s, Alejandro Jodorowsky, um, I'm sorry for butchering your name, <laughs> if I did.
1: He's <laughs> um, rolling in his grave.
0: Yeah. Uh, he acquired the rights uh, to make an extravagant 14-hour adaptation of the book. However, the project fell through, and uh, the efforts would later become a subject of a 2013 documentary called Jodorowsky's Dune. And I I think it's available online if you guys want to look into that. Mm -hmm. Um, Then David Lynch went in and tried to create his own Dune for a 1984 adaptation. And it was intended as a three-hour film. However, it was cut down to 137 minutes. And as a result, um, it was poorly received because people felt it was very choppy. It was all over the place and the then, effects
1: were also kind of rough
0: yes mm-hmm. even,
1: for back, even for back in the day maybe i don't know I, i've seen clips of it and yeah the effects look a little bit wonky yeah in
0: 1996 producer richard p rubinstein uh, acquired the rights and produced a live action miniseries in 2000 for the sci-fi channel in 2007, Paramount began development on a proposed film adaptation of Dune. Peter Berg joined as director in 2008. However, Berg dropped out to make Battleship, the 2012 film that a lot of people know.
1: <laughs> yeah, Michael Bay produced it, right?
0: Yes. Rihanna yeah. was in it.
1: Rihanna was in it, yeah.
0: Yes, she was in it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I remember that, yeah.
0: Of um, Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Pierre Morel uh, then took over as director, only for him to drop out in 2010. And then by 2011, Paramount just put the project in a turnaround as the rights had lapsed. Legendary Entertainment acquired the rights to the novel in 2016. Denny uh, was then hired to direct later that year. Uh, that year. Mm-hmm. And so adapting Dune had been Dene's lifelong dream ever since he learned about Lynch's adaptation. He waited until he finished Arrival and Blade Runner 2049 to gain sufficient experience in the sci-fi genre uh, before starting to work on the film. And originally Roger Dakins was initially set to shoot this film however due to scheduling difficulties he was unavailable and i'm assuming that he kind of recommend his friend greg frazier which i didn't know that they were friends but Mm -hmm. um greg frazier said like oh yeah like my friend roger was supposed to um, shoot it but he can do it so Mm -hmm. i'm i'm assuming that's how this whole extravagant and wonderful experience <laughs> yeah I
1: would, I would have been super interested to see what deacons would have done because you know every everybody loved deacons from from a cinematography standpoint like everyone knows who he is and so mm-hmm. it would have been super cool to see his style in dune but i'm glad fraser i'm also glad fraser did it. i, I like fraser's like efficiently Camera, just like the coverage and the storytelling, like every frame is always very efficient. I mean, they, I feel like they have a somewhat similar style in the long, in the grand scheme of things. So, yeah, you know, <clears throat> yeah. I mean, sadly for Deacons, I think he was shooting um Goldfinch. I don't know if you know that movie. I think that's the movie that kept him from working on this, I think, unless there was something else, but maybe uh, it, it would have been. Said.
0: It might have been because like i think at the time that this they were doing the planning for this i believe blade runner was already finished so yes yeah and yeah, then also, be,
1: yeah yeah go go for it
0: yeah and then also i kind of feel like that i do agree that roger dinkins and greg Fraser has like a similar kind of like way of technique in terms of lighting and shooting I would say like Blade Runner was like the only exception that was like a little bit different from the way Roger would usually shoot because it was very colorful. And, Mm -hmm. um, but, but yeah, I do, I do agree, but then they also have very different techniques and like, just like little quirks here and there, but yeah, totally. Did you wanted to say anything else? Sorry, like if I cut you off.
1: <laughs> no, no worries. No, I think I think the point was made that yeah, like there's they're both very similar, but yeah, Deacons was working on something else, unfortunately. But yeah, I love the way uh Greg Frazier did it too. Yeah. Yeah. We'll get into it for sure.
0: Yeah. And then also like for those who are completely Living in Iraq, Roger Deacons is like a well-known cinematographer, um, who's been nominated for so many times, and then he finally won (laughs) for Blade Runner, and that was like the biggest thing. (laughs) It was like everyone was like, Oh my god, this Oscar is like not just Blade Runner, but it's also for uh the assassination of Jesse James, Rango what else like that's all i have (laughs) but like Uh, what else
1: country for old men was great no country for
0: old men but yeah there's like so many films that he is like shot that it's it's like beyond what we can like describe
1: (laughs) yeah he's and he won again he won for a second time with 1917 i think the 1917 (laughs) didn't didn't he for that movie the war movie
0: oh um did he i thought that it's was like run.
1: it's a movie that was like a wonder i'm pretty sure he also won it that year and i think it was like consecutive or something like that so he won it two years in a row but i could be wrong about it i think he has two oscars yeah
0: yeah he might be one second
1: we're, we're just double checking right now
0: yeah we're just double checking
1: <laughs> we, we can't be up here spinning false news
0: oh yeah he did win yes so it was like consecutive like two times in a row
1: yeah
0: yeah good for him he does deserve
1: he deserves it for sure yeah
0: yeah he's like now like Meryl Streep like we should just give it to him
1: (laughs) yeah exactly
0: (laughs) um okay so moving on (laughs) uh so a linguistics expert, David Peterson, helped create the Freeman um, language of the movie. His previous work was creating the Dos Rocky and Valerian language in Game of Thrones, for those of you who are wondering. Mm. So scenes on Kaladin, um the planet, the ocean planet that uh, Paul and his family originally live in, uh, were shot in Stadladen in Norway, while much of the desert uh, scenes for Arrakis were shot in Jordan and Abu Dhabi, and one of the famous settings was shot in the famous wadi rum valley in jordan which was also a shooting location for lawrence of arabia and the martian so it's kind of like going back to the te lawrence kind of inspiration that frank herbert um was trying to connect to
1: yeah it's always like you know even even working in LA uh and working on shoots and stuff like you always pass through other locations you know like many other famous movies have shot so there's always a little bit of that kind of like cool factor of uh of being somewhere where a different film has shot before and and yeah I just I can imagine just how cool that must have felt but also how annoying it must have been to work in the desert for for that long
0: so. um Yes, so Uh the film was shot over a period of four months, and I think it was in 2019 that they shot in. Donald Mawatt initially considered custom lenses for the blue eyes of the Fremen characters, however, Special effects supervisor Paul Lambert ended up digitally adding the lenses during post-production because Moa later explained the practical lenses would be a disaster in the desert, especially with the wind and the heat. I think they did a couple test runs with Zendaya, but it just they felt that it was just easier just to digitally add it later. So more than 2,000 visual effects uh, shots were created for the film. So for these shots, they use um, chroma key process called a sand screen. So what they did, it's kind of like a brown version of the green screen where they use brown kind of like blocks or just like a brown screen to be in the area where like a ship is coming or like a creature is there. And then Mm -hmm. they would later go back and digitally add it. And this was resulted in the shots appearing more natural to the desert scenes. And And
1: I'm sure it also helped with like not reflecting that blue, typical blue screen, you know, like it's not reflecting blue light back onto the sand, which would have been a nightmare to deal with too.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. So due to COVID-19, Warner Brothers announced the film will be delayed um, from December 18th, 2020 release to October 1st, 2021. And also like during COVID, um, Hans Zimmer was still doing score for the film and he had to do a lot of remote work where he's in his house and then he has like the singer and or like the choir in different areas throughout the world on zoom and then he would have to record it through there when warner brothers uh revealed that HBO max will stream the movies for 2021 and 2022 uh Denis was upset claiming that the movie is meant to be seen in theaters and i totally agree with that i kind of feel it's like movies like dune that kind of needs to be in the theaters in order for people to kind of experience like the look and like the shot and even the story however despite his displeasure it was the most watched film overall in the U.S. on the streaming service for the first three weeks of its release Denis confirmed that his adaptation of Dune will be a split into two films to preserve and not cut the film into million pieces. Um, However, um, only the first film was greenlit and produced with an optional sequel, depending on how well the first film performed. And since we knew that the first film went really well and went above and beyond, um, the second film was greenlit uh, the Tuesday after the film was released. And also, production designer Patrice Vernet stated the original plan of the first film was supposed to end later in the story. However, during pre-production, the final scenes were shifted to the sequel. However, he did note that some of the scenes for part two have already been done. So they're kind of like continuing that work, basically. Mm-hmm. And uh, going back to David Lynch, um, he notes that he has zero interest in watching this film, but it's not what you think. It's not like he's jealous of Denis. It's (laughs) more of like he still has painful memories um, when making the 1984 version, which that kind of sucks. It's like he can't even watch the film because it brings back so many bad memories of his experience trying to make this film happen
1: yeah meanwhile this one i think won six oscars uh last year so big difference there for sure
0: oh yes yes (laughs) it went from like a completely box office failure like oh this film is never going to like this adaptation is never going to cease to exist and then here we are now like with the first film like of this two-part series gone so well and, you know, even gave a particular someone an Oscar.
1: <laughs> yep. That would be Greg Frazier. Yes. Uh, so let's talk about the cinematography a little bit. Uh, Greg Frazier says that the film was originally shot digitally on the Arri Alexa LF and the LF and the mini LF. I think at the time it was a prototype mini LF because it hadn't been released yet generally. Mm-hmm. Um, but even though they shot digitally, uh, Denis thought the look was still too sharp. And, and Greg also thought the look was still too sharp. So they transferred the picture onto a 35 film and then they scanned that back to digital. So it's like, and it, if I'm correct, that's the first time it's ever been done where the film was done digitally and then transferred to film and then transferred back to digital after that. So it, it helped give the film A more filmic look, without actually going through, you know the the troubles of shooting on film on set in the desert. And I feel like you can really tell, like it blends just it blends the VFX together, like it blends everything together. Like all the effects look very natural to this environment. Mm -hmm. Um, Whenever you see shots of like aircraft or anything that's clearly VFX, like it it works so well with with the landscape. And it helps just roll off highlights and like the edges around people's faces Any sharp lines to help smooth those out so it feels more organic and filmic. Yes. Um, yeah, this and, was done to create the... Yes, go ahead.
0: Uh, yeah, and it's kind of interesting because like compared to like a Marvel movie, like I would say the Marvel movies, mm-hmm. I'm really sorry to say this, but like via their, their special effects are not that great there are some moments where they have shown in trailers that are like really great, but then for other parts, it's it kind of almost like they, they cut corners in a way, but for this film, it's like, that didn't happen. Like they made sure that everything would like fit in and would be natural. And it didn't seem like any of the special effects or, coloring or anything was out of like you know range or just like in a weird area
1: that's so true i i feel that way about like spider-man no way home i'm a big spider-man fan but like when i see that movie i can't help but constantly think like oh this is totally shot in a green screen green screen room like mm-hmm. it feels <clears throat> like the whole movie is shot on a green screen and you can kind of tell And they do have, like like you said, some VFX shots that are really well done, but then they also have a lot of VFX shots that are not as well, you know, not as convincing. And I think it's because they have so much VFX to do that there's just no way, there's no time for them to make every shot, you know, perfect. I think Dune also probably benefited from being pushed to a later release because of COVID. I'm sure they had a lot more time to hone in the vfx so um
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know it really shows like you watch this movie and, and it looks very convincing very very realistic and and it's it's due i think a lot to how they shot but also this process that they did of of shooting digital and then and then finding a sweet spot with that process because like you say um they thought shooting straight up just straight up shooting on film was too nostalgic and didn't quite feel this feel the sci-fi vibe of the movie. Mm -hmm. So it was like, they didn't want to shoot on film, but they wanted some part of that. And I think they found the perfect balance with, with what they did. Yes. Yeah. So during filming, he notes that the wind uh, gave emotion into the shots despite the wind being a challenge, which is true. Like this movie adds a lot of elemental interest into every frame there's a lot of sand there's wind there's water there's ocean you know there's there's a lot of elements playing in every frame of the of the movie since the exterior shots were wide angle he states that the interiors had close-up and intimate shots to give the actors a chance to play with their emotions and since they're shooting large format you know you can get really close to actors oh yeah uh, yeah in the way they were shooting um there's a lot of good performances in this movie. So they wanted to really make sure they got all those due to the VFX. The challenge in filming the film was lighting. And so Greg notes that Paul Lambert, uh, who's the VFX person on the film, Mm -hmm. uh, he will know that the lighting is wrong and would cause the shot to be wrong. So, you know, they had to work together and make sure all the lighting was good for VFX and that they matched. Uh, funny enough, Greg Fraser never wrote the book, uh, yeah. <laughs> which is, you know, pretty crazy. But instead, he used the passion from Denis to join the team and and get be inspired for the movie. Um, I know I heard Greg Fraser say a quote about like how after a while he finally got the vision that Denis wanted for the film. So, you know, at least at least they were able to get on the same page. But I think that was in, in reference to how Denis wanted the movie to be in four by three aspect ratio, mm-hmm. uh, which I th- for Greg Frazier, it, it didn't seem right at the start because he wanted like landscapes and, you know, more of a sci fi like widescreen format. Yeah. But uh, but after a while, like he, he started to see that, you know, what, what Denis was going after was making the characters big in the frame you know making it feel larger than life in that way yeah yeah and this is the first dune adaptation to be filmed in imax with uh, the two previous projects being filmed in todd ao 35 in 1984 and in Univ univism two two to one
0: Yeah, so the Univism was the miniseries, and then the Todd one was the nineteen eighty four film.
1: Like we were saying, like IMAX is such a bigger sensor format, you know, and so they were able to use the whole uh, sensor for from the Alexa LF cameras, which is like this bigger IMAX approved sensor, so they can get like much, much bigger feeling images. Which is very appropriate for this movie, right?
0: Oh, yeah. Like, you want to kind of, like, have the audience, like, almost be immersed into, like, the desert or, like, to be part of the scene, basically.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And then during the 2022 Oscars, Greg Frazier won for Best Cinematography, making it his first win and his second nomination. And he also won a BAFTA and American Society of Cinematographers award. Uh, so, you know, his his dedication and hard work were definitely recognized. And to me, it is kind of like Deacons where, you know, he's he's shot so many good looking films before. Yeah. That, you know, this award could be for all of those too. Like his his library of movies that he's shot are, are so good looking.
0: Yeah and I also wanted to note that a lot of his films like that he shot are kind of in very different genres. I mean you have Dune who which is a sci-fi and then you have the Batman which is like kind of like an action superhero movie but then you also have Lion which is like a biographical drama and then Uh, Foxcatcher which is kind of a sports drama but then it's also like kind of like a true crime biography (laughs) it's like he he's done so many genres and I know that he noted that he does that because he doesn't want to be kind of stuck in a particular genre or a particular type and he always wants to kind of uh, reinvent himself but yeah, so for those of you who, you know, want to be successful cinematographers or just be successful, like you know, overall, maybe just like reinvent yourself like every project.
1: Exactly. That's what the best cinematographers do is they they adapt to whatever script they're handed in and and they try to just make it about that script and and you know leave all the ego and stuff at home you know like you just you just bring bring what the script needs Mm -hmm.
0: yeah exactly so the summary of the film since it's like a three-hour film I'm just going to condense it so most of the the summary is from Wikipedia and then I kind of like adjust here and there but just wanted to let you guys know that it's going to be condensed because we want to talk more about the shots, so the film starts in the year ten one nine one, where Duke Leto of House Atreides, Oscar Isaac, a ruler of the Ocean Planet, and father of Paul, who's Tim- Timothy Timothy Chalamet. So after a centuries, a century of rule, um, the Padisha Empire Emperor Shaddam the fourth um, of House Corino uh, decides to replace House Haakonin with House Atreides as the fifth holder of Arrakis, which is a harsh desert planet and the only source of spice. Uh, So spice is like a valuable substance that uh, bestows its users of heightened vitality and awareness. And it's also kind of like a kind of like a health remedy it helps with health and maybe longevity of life but it's also crucial for faster than light interstellar travel as a grants space guide navigators to the limited um, presence of safe navigation so as a result of that the House Hakonan would basically harvest the spice in Arrakis and then ship it over for this interstellar travel, and like as a result, they like gained so much wealth because it is such a highly valuable item. Shaddam one day intends to have House Hakonan be replaced by House Atreides, but they intend to have Hoconin secretly retake the planet with aid of his Sardarkar troops, eradicating House Atreides, whose influence threatens his control because Leto wants to kind of work with the freemen in Arrakis so that it's not like that they're just taking the spice and just not caring about the planet or the people who live there so leto is reluctant when he's offered the role to take over the planet uh, and also the spice harvesting but he sees the advantage again with trying to work with the freemen and paul wants to be part of leto's council but he refuses claiming that he is not ready Meanwhile, Leto's concubine, basically his wife, uh, Lady Jessica, (laughs) is an arc or of the Ben Gesserit, uh, which is kind of like an exclusive sisterhood whose members possess advanced physical and mental abilities. So this includes like witchcraft and kind of controlling people with this hidden voice. And it's kind of like this, like, like kind of like this deep and like almost demon-like voice that basically like controls people when like you just order them to like sit down or to cut the ropes or something.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um. So as part of their centuries-long breeding program, the sisterhood... Instructs Lady Jessica to bear a daughter whose son will become the Quizzad Haderach, um, a Bene um, Gesserit and Misanic <laughs> superbeing. Um, <laughs> sorry, it's basically like like the person, the Quizzad Haderach. It's kind of like the super being with clairvoyance necessary to guide uh, humanity to a better future. It's kind of almost like Jesus in a way. Yeah. For those of you who are like like me, that's like there's so many like difficult words. <laughs> um, yeah, we should
1: have put a warning at the start of this.
0: Yes, a warning. There are a lot of words that are just not in the dictionary. <laughs> However, she bears a son as her first child, uh, named Paul. And basically, the sisters are disappointed. They're kind of like, "How dare you bore a son?" And then it's almost like, "Well, she doesn't have like the ability to like change the gender."
2: <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so throughout his life, Paul is trained by Leto's aide, who's stuck in Idaho. Um, he's kind of like one of the soldiers that works with Leto and Paul. Then you have Gurney Halleck, who's kind of like a skilled fighter that tries to teach Paul how to fight and how to defend himself and always be on alert. And then he had the soup doctor, uh, Wellington Yoon, who's kind of like, almost like his like personal doctor but also he like helps him with like I don't know just like maybe like spiritual and then trying to like control like one's breath type of thing the mintent Thurfer hawats. I believe he's like one of uh the aides of Leto I think he's like kind of like the assistant that would like inform Leto like oh yeah like they spent this much money <laughs> like traveling yeah.
1: over here <laughs> yeah. right because i don't know if you know this based from the book but like the whole thing is like computers try to overthrow humanity or ai becomes too advanced so so they resort to not using computers anymore instead they use people to to so to do specific tasks so that yeah that guy like is like kind of like the mathematician like the yeah. computer guy would say. mm-hmm yeah
0: while the men kind of help Paul out with like more of like the physical and kind of like technical stuff, uh, Jessica trains him with the Bene Gesserit discipline. So kind of like the woodcraft, you know, trying to control his voice um, and just like understanding like the different languages and so much more. So one day Paul confines to Jessica and Duncan and um, separately like it's like kind of like two scenes but he basically tells them like yes like I had this vision of like the future and then he believes that both like died in battles or I think like for lady Jessica he kind of realized that she's pregnant with her second child um And I'm assuming that, like, that child is going to be, like, the Jesus. Um, And she's, like, how dare you, like, that's, how dare you, like, know that that's, like, super personal? Because I guess she hasn't even told Leto himself about the pregnancy. And then she was, like, how dare you find that? Because it's such, like, a secret and, like, deep personal thing that she hasn't told anyone and then like there are other visions where he feels like he's going to be the Jesus that's going to help um lead like this holy war and to like kind of bring the freemen and other communities together to be kind of like this peaceful output. Mm-hmm. And after he told tells the two of them, particularly with Lady Jessica, she somehow. assuming like i guess like kind of like because she was thinking of it um the reverend mother gaius helen mohina played by rampling um, visits Kaladin and subjects paul to this test to assess his impulse control so basically he goes into this room alone with um the mother and basically he has to like put his hand in this box But when he puts it in his hand in the box, it's kind of like this excruciating pain. But if he takes his hand out of the box, she will kill him with this poison dart. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So basically it's kind of like he has to like hold his like pain and, and his control. And he does because like for somehow he kind of like listens to his inner voice that he hears and then basically overcomes the pain and just like looks like straight into Mother Gaius's eyes and then she's like freaked out. It's like, okay, we're done here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So when Mohina leaves, she goes to Baron Hakonin, um and, and instructs Baron Hokonan to spare Paul and Jessica during his planned coup because he is planning to basically take over Arrakis and basically kill the Aritas like clan. And he he's kind of like one of those people where he agrees, but he doesn't fully like says like, yes, I'm going to save them or spare them. You know, there was like, I believe like he plans to like leave them out in the desert and have like the sandworms kill them. Yeah. And he like mentions to his aide once Mohina leaves. And then the House Atreides arrives at Arakan, which is the fortress, a stronghold on Arrakis, where Duncan's advanced parties learn about the planet and the Freemen. And Duncan is kind of like one of those people where he like, you know, understands what the Freemans, you know, want and you know what they believe in. And he said, like, "Yeah, like they know so much about this planet. Like I think that we need to be friends with them in order to be successful, basically." Uh, so um, the natives revere Paul and Jessica, which Jessica explains is due to the Bene Gesserit's sowing beliefs on the planet in preparation for their arrival. And Leto negotiates with the Freeman chief chieftain, uh Stickler. Oh wait, Stigar, Stilgar, sorry. <laughs>
1: um,
0: <laughs> and meets a plantologist and imperial judge of the Chung, Dr. Liet Keynes. And Liet Keynes is one of those people who is kind of like a middleman. Like she doesn't consider herself to be for the Freemans or the Aritas. Um, she's kind of like in the middle where she's like, well, like I'm I don't want to be biased over here, but I want to at least help both of you out. Kind of like in form of communications or, you know, whatnot.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Keynes informs Leto, Paul, and Halleck. Uh, the dangers of spice harvesting including uh, the giant sandworms uh, which travels under the desert Um, and basically the sandworms are kind of like these creatures that attack um, anything that has like a rhythmic um, beat on the ground Um, and even like when paul was learning about the freemans um like one of like the things that he learned was that the Freemans would kind of do like a kind of like a ear, like an awkward dance movement where they kind of do like different types of walking so that it's almost like they are just sand going through the dunes, basically, mm-hmm. um, so that the sand worms won't attack them. So during one of the flights with Keen's, Leto, Paul, and Gurney spot a sandworm approaching and an active spice harvester uh, with a stranded crew because they have these kind of like these like carriers that would like pick up the harvest machine for like a few minutes while the sandworm like just kind of like passes through. However, one of the arms that would connect to the ship wasn't working. So basically Leto orders um, his flight crew to kind of take in the men. And though uh, Keane's warns, like, oh, like, you're going to lose a bunch of spice. And he's like, I don't care. Like, I'm focused on my crew. Mm
2: -hmm. Like,
0: I don't want them to die. And then while that happens, Paul is exposed to the spice. And then it it triggers this intense premonition that he later explains to Lady Jessica um, about the baby and about like the holy war that's about to happen. And mm-hmm. yeah.
1: Exactly. And then so after a failed after that they go home and they're going to bed and there's like a failed assassination attempt. Uh, on paul so leto kind of his dad freaks out and places his soldiers on high alert uh, and then so what happens after that is that ua the doctor disables uh arakeen's shields and allows the harkonnen and the sardokar troops to invade arakeen ua does this by incapacitating leto with like a some sort of poison that kind of like Let's makes him incapacitated, unable to talk, or even use his muscles. And so Yue tells him that he made a deal to deliver him to the Baron in exchange for his captive wife. Yue places one of Leto's teeth with a poison gas capsule and is killed after delivering Leto. So at the in the end, it was all worth it was all for nothing. Um yeah, because yeah. I
0: remember Baron talked about like well like i did free her but i didn't mean like actually free her
1: like so he basically more like he killed her and now she's free
0: yeah so then he was like oh you're gonna be free too so then he kills him so it was kind of all for nothing basically
1: Mm -hmm. yeah super savage Mm -hmm. Uh, leto is taken to a dining hall where he witnesses the baron killing yue and so Leto luckily is able to use his, the poison gas teeth as a last resort that Yua gave him to uh, kill the Baron. So he bites his teeth off and releases the gas. Unfortunately, the Baron survives, but everyone else does uh, die. Mm -hmm. Um, And so Duncan manages to escape on an ornithopter, which is one of their spacecraft, which is like kind of like a dragonfly looking thing. Yeah. Um, which looks super cool with the VFX.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, so yeah, l- luckily Duncan's able to escape. At the same time, the, the the Harkonnens capture Paul and Jessica and they try to take them into the desert and drop them off. Uh, but luckily, the Paul and Jessica are able to use the voice and the powers of the Bene Gesserit to control the minds of their captives and be able to like have them kill each other and hand over the uh, helicopter basically except that that gets turned offline as soon as they realize that they were the aircraft is stolen so now they're stranded in in the desert and they find a survival kit kit left for them by ua um Mm -hmm. and so they spend the night in a town where paul experiences visions of a holy war in his name across the universe so just calling back to the his his episode that he had when he was inhaling all that spice
0: yeah and i remember in this scene this is kind of like where we see him now with blue eyes so it makes us believe that oh so he kind of joins the freemans basically
1: yeah it's um i'm sure like some of the scenes they shot for the sequel must be like some of this stuff where they yeah they might as well have shot all that other stuff In the future of him, you know, leading everybody else in this holy war. Mm -hmm. And so from there, the Baron hands over command of Arrakis to his nephew, Raban, and orders him to restart spice production to recover the losses of of taking over uh, Mm -hmm. the planet again. But, and luckily, Paul and Jessica are found by Duncan and Kynes, and they head to an old research station but are found by the Sardaukar troops. So Paul disclosed, yeah, go go ahead. You were trying to say something.
0: Yeah, I think like Sar, Sardaukar, it's almost like kind of like the Holy Knights um, from the Holy War in like medieval England. It, you know, it kind of felt like that, like they're led by the emperor, which is kind of like a religious person. But that's kind of how I compared them to those of you trying to figure out what the fuck these people are,
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's there's a scene in the movie where they're being recruited uh, to help the Harkonnens, and you see like one guy on top of a tower chanting like almost this like religious anthem thing, and it's super spooky the way they do it, like with the audio, like it's like it sounds like a car revving. Uh, but like just all like low tones Um,
0: yeah it's um, almost like kind of like Norwegian chanting for you know it's like
1: like, sorry sorry for yeah Yeah.
0: (laughs) we're not trying to offend Norwegian people like
1: (laughs) (laughs) oh my god no definitely not we're gonna get canceled yeah (laughs) but yeah uh, where was I Paul discloses his plans to seize the golden lion throne by marrying one of uh, somebody else's daughters in the empire as an alternative to the chaos that would ensue from the news of the Harkonnen and the Sardaukar onslaught. And so, but then the Sardaukar arrive and they're trying to kill everybody uh, that survives. So Duncan and various Freeman sacrifice themselves to allow them to escape. While kind separates, and she is ambushed by troops, so she learns. But she's able to, not necessarily save her life, but sacrifice her life uh, for the others by uh, calling on a sandworm that comes and eats them. Mm-hmm. Um, she takes it well. I mean, she's like she she's almost like got this religious reverence towards the worms. So so like she goes down in a very accepting way yeah and then so after that paul and jessica reach the deep desert and meet the fremen tribe among them is Stilgar and finally uh zendaya yeah johnny um yeah i mean we see her throughout the movie but this is the first time like her character is like not a dream Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Uh, and so once they meet up the fremen warrior jamis Protests their admission and is killed by Paul in a ritual duel to the death, which, you know, is is an intense moment because right before Paul has a vision that he's supposed to die. Yes, Uh, he's supposed to die during this. But in a way, he does die in that. uh, I think his mother says or, or somebody else in the movie says to kill another person is to kill your soul. And so, in a way, based on that, Paul does kill a part of himself. And so, that I think that's what his premonition was actually meaning. Um, yeah. So, against Jessica's wishes, Paul insists on joining them to fulfill his father's goal of bringing peace to Arrakis. And the movie ends kind of on a, it's not necessarily a cliffhanger, but it just kind of ends right there.
0: Um, yeah it's kind of it almost like leaves like just like mysterious of like okay what's hap what's going to happen next because it's almost kind of like paul is going to join the freemans but then jessica's kind of hesitant with them feeling that they may turn against them and then you have chani who who like says like it's only the beginning <laughs> just, yeah it's just yeah. kind of funny <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, like it, so it kind of like leaves on like kind of like, okay, we'll like pause here and then we'll come back to it in the next movie type of thing. Yeah. But yeah, that's, that's the end of the film for right now. <laughs> like, we still have to do the second part when it gets released. But yeah, totally. like let's talk about like the film. So for me, I kind of really like the film. I felt that it was kind of like cohesive and I feel that everyone kind of put their like 110% into their performances to make this film happen because you have like the characters like they have like really great chemistry and then like the storyline is pretty good like yes like it is kind of like a very slow movie and um there are moments where it's kind of more uh than actually saying things um like yeah. especially for like walking or like when they're traveling um to different planets or even just like standing in a room it's a lot of like very kind of like uh dead noise where it's like nothing's happening like, in terms of speaking, but something is happening in terms of, like, physical movement or just, like, the design or the atmosphere. And I really like Greg Frazier's performance. I have a lot of shots that I really did like. And it's interesting because from the other films that we have seen, like, he he does do a lot of, like, fluorescent lighting technique where it's kind of, like you could tell like, oh, like it's very almost like daylight lighting rather than tungsten lighting. Um yeah. But I feel like with this film, it still has like his like quirkiness of like using fluorescent lighting and day, daylight lighting. But also it brings up the warm feeling from the desert and then also the cold feeling as well, because there, there are some shots where it has that warm orange glow to it and the warm glow like does come from like the ships the the harvesting the spice the spice itself lady jessica's outfit when she arrives in arrakis um but then it also has cool tones more per se the grays and the slate colors but, yeah, it's just, like, very beautiful, and there there's so many shots that I wanted to put into when talking about the cinematography, but it's just, like, there's just so much that I can't go almost throughout the entire film to be like, oh, this is a great shot, this is a great shot, like, <laughs> Like, I don't know, it's a, it's a really great film. Like, yes, it, it does take like three hours of your life, but I feel like it's worth it.
1: it. Yeah, it's a visual and audio experience that that is probably best felt in the theaters, but now it's on HBO, so and that's how I saw it the second time, but it definitely is an experience that every shot, you know, there's something to praise, there's something to wonder at for sure I remember just looking at people's faces the whole movie and thinking like damn that's a well-lit face and I think it's it's because you know it's all built in where the locations have like these floating lights that follow the characters around that are warm and that's kind of what you might think like is kind of like that fluorescent look of like this light source that's really close and has this very specific fall off. But then you mix that in with outside motivated scenes where there's a lot of daylight coming in and it's all like bounced or skipped or or, you know, coming through a hanger, but then like skipping in from the cold uh slate concrete, like you said, giving like the this like very like nice quality to the light on people's faces. It's like mm-hmm. every shot is feels really, really well Exposed, really well uh, colored, and and you know there's some shots where I know they didn't even do much lighting necessarily. They just had a sun had the sun coming in through. Like for example, there's the scene in the old lab, the old testing lab, yeah, uh, where where the Empire's troops come in from the top, and there's there's like sunlight pouring down from this like hole like hole above but there's mm-hmm. shape to that. There's like, there's like a pattern that's uh, up above. I remember reading or hearing that they were just like, you know, like we just saw the space, saw the light coming in and thought we didn't need to light it at all. We just needed to add some shape to the light coming in. So they put yeah. up brands and stuff like that to give that some shape so it was definitely a lot of like shooting at the right time also and, and making sure they had like the best possible light which i think is the only way to do this like making a desert look good is not necessarily easy because you know it's it's all the same looking almost you know like you really have to play with the angle of the sun the angle of the camera in relation to the the waves of the of the dunes and stuff. So I think they did a great job with that. Really. Yeah. Did you pick up on any like visual motifs or anything like that? I, for me, like anytime the lens flared, like we were kind of like looking at a dream or, or looking at one of Paul's visions, which is interesting because that's how the movie starts. I think the movie starts with a flare. That's like yeah. The whole thing is like a dream. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah.
0: I remember like, I do, I did pick up like the parts where whenever they're outside, it's very like wide and open. There wasn't a lot of close up um, shots. But then when they're inside, it's very like kind of like closed in, very intimate. So I did pick up on that. I also picked up like on the differences with the two planets. So with um, Arrakis, it was a lot of like warm tones so it was a lot of oranges a lot of browns there were a couple greens i guess it was to kind of like balance out of like the orange and like the browns Mm -hmm. but then when you go to the colladin the ocean planet that that they were originally in paul and leto and lady jessica it's kind of like a lot of like blues it's because like i think like even like their suits is kind of like almost like a very dark and deep green but it kind of comes off as like black in a way so I really like that where it it does bring out kind of like the differences between the two planets but yet they're somehow connected in terms of color aspects because they do have um, the orange tints in the Kaladin planet But then they also have a lot of green decorative coloring in the Arrakis. So I kind of liked how they tried to separate the planets, but also kind of connect them in a way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I think like for Baron's headquarters, it was very like a lot of very dark and then also fluorescent. I think that's kind of where I saw a lot of fluorescent lighting. Um, Yeah. It was a lot of blacks, and it had like a little bit of yellows here and there. So I really liked how they tried to have each area kind of have like a different color aspect ratio. But then I still liked how that they're all connected to kind of this like cohesive, like color wheel, if you would say.
1: Yeah, totally. I, I liked a lot what they did whenever they used the voice and they really want to highlight that uh, effect. Like when they just did a lot of different things, like the first time the, like when the um, mother, Ben Bennett Jesser, it calls Paul uh, when, when he's, when she's testing him on pain mm-hmm. and she calls him and the, the camera kind of blurs out the lights fade out. Like the camera's on a dolly and you're pushing forward into this blurriness of the camera being out of focus. It's like, it's, It was a really great visual way to communicate the idea of like losing consciousness and and but still like having this physicality to like your body that's like you're not in control of like that felt super cool like pushing in on a dolly while being out of focus totally captures that feeling for me so you know it's not just the visuals it's the audio too like they always do this thing where they you see the actor's whenever they use the voice their mouths are moving but you don't hear anything right away Mm -hmm. it takes a second it's like a delayed impact which makes it feel even more off-putting and and you know and they they do it a lot and it's one of the cooler effects that they do visually for me um and yeah there's a lot of that there's there's a lot of things they do yeah like flares and like throwing stuff out of focus a lot of little camera tricks that they use Mm -hmm. uh, that are you know very well used and and things you've never seen before specifically like when they use the voice like i feel like that sort of the way they build that sequence is something i've never seen before
0: Mm -hmm. speaking of the voices i remember i think it was like the first time that paul tries to use his voice Mm -hmm. where it's like you said like where it he says something but we don't hear it and then it's kind of like kind of like a late start of like the audio so I really like that Mm
1: -hmm. yeah and I just wanted to say too like I feel like fear is a important theme of the or like conquering fear is an important theme of the movie and and I think Rick Frazier's like cinematography goes a long way to show the beautiful and the the things that can be feared. Like, I just think about that wide shot of Paul when the, when they're running away from the worm towards the end, him and his mom, and Mm -hmm. they, they reach this hard land. And so the worm can't get to them, but it still comes out of the desert and it like stares Paul in the face. And it's just this extreme why that holds for a long time. And it's for me, it's like, the beauty of the there's a lot of beauty in the shot that's supposed to be really fucking scary of this giant worm you know but the with with the length that they hold on the shot like it lets you like really take it in and be like you know like this is a force of nature like while it is scary it's still very beautiful and and so to me it's like a perfect way of capturing the theme of conquering your fear is by like holding on these shots like going extremely wide and like choosing to do that really helps with that theme of like you know grounding everybody and being like you know while this is gary it's still it's still very impressive and and all that
0: yeah i remember i think it was in like the dune wikipedia or something that they kind of mentioned that the book is almost like a coming of age novel where you have paul who's kind of like plate supposed to be like a 15 year old kid and I do agree where it's like he wants to be with his father in the council but then he argues that oh Paul you're too young like you don't have enough experience basically Mm -hmm. and it's kind of like how we feel where you know when we were kids like we always felt like that we were old enough to do a bunch of stuff like that we were old enough to drive or something like that But then when we're in that situation that we can drive or we can do things that we can do when we were younger, it almost like has that fear where you're like, oh shit, like I, I do have to drive now. And now I'm like, have this like entire responsibility. And I feel the way that Paul is going through where when we first see him in the beginning, he's kind of someone that's like, okay, I'm ready to be an adult basically I'm ready to have responsibility but then when the responsibility kind of just like gets thrown into him after Harkonnen raid the Atreides then he's like oh shit like I, I do now have this responsibility on my shoulders where now I'm kind of like the person that is supposed to you know, bring everyone together and to almost start this holy war that's about to happen.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And I think like it was like the tense scene that you kind of see his fear where he's like, oh shit, like this is actually becoming a reality. And then he kind of has like a little bit of a panic attack where he's like, oh, oh God, like my dad's dead. Most of AIDS are dead. And sure enough, like he knows like Duncan is going to die in the future but he doesn't expect it to happen so soon Mm -hmm. and i think it was like the next day when you know he meets up with them he then dies like when they go to the old science research center he wants the responsibility but then you also get like the fear that when he does get is thrown the responsibility he has the fear and then now he has to kind of like control it and then being an adult but also he's still a kid at the same time
1: yeah paul does definitely go through a, a lot of changes a lot of character growth he loses all his friends and i feel like that's timothy does a great job like embodying that of like you know by the end of it you can you can see how, where he's going from like position of non-leadership to a position of leadership where. He's starting to make big decisions, starting to think about the future and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Um,
0: So do you want to talk about some of the shots that you like? I know you talked about the the sandworm, like exposing himself to Paul, but I didn't know if you had any other shots that you (laughs) found interesting.
1: I'm trying to think because, like you said, like it's every shot I was just pretty blown away with in terms of just the lighting and compositions. So it's, it's hard for me to pick. And it also, like, I saw the movie the second time for this podcast. I saw it on HBO Max, so it wasn't, like, IMAX, which I feel like is is kind of a... It's like you you kind of need to see this on IMAX because the frame is so much bigger. It, it makes a big difference. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm trying to think specifically what, what I super enjoyed. There's that shot of Baron Conan where he's like rubbing his forehead and it's clearly it's, it's a a allusion to apocalypse now. And I remember watching that in the theater and I was like, ah, I
0: I remember, I think his name is Stalin. Skarsgård Stalin. Yeah. Yeah. I remember he talked about like his character and I think it was like when they were kind of like figuring out like, okay, like how do we want like this character to look like I believe he said that he did do references from apocalypse now with Marlon Brando because I think when he got like the makeup and the prosthetics on him he realized like oh shit I look like Marlon Brando <laughs> like <laughs> I look like this guy who's kind of like deranged and it's almost like he he wants to keep like conquering and wants to like keep you know basically being evil but mm-hmm. also he knows that like his actions do take on like, basically make him more evil. And, yeah, I guess like that whole forward um, moment was kind of like his weakness in a way where we mm-hmm. kind of see him weak at that point because like okay. throughout the entire film, he's kind of like pretty, like strong and very dictator-like because there was this like one scene i think when uh, mother mahima left um like the meeting when like she asked him to spare paul and lady jessica and when baron was alone with his aide, um he was like oh yeah i'm not going to like spare them like i'm going to throw them in the sand Um, and then the aide is like wait but sir like you promised and then he's like I said and he kind of like just raises himself like up in the air Um, (laughs) and it's almost kind of like his way of being like no I'm in charge and it was also interesting because though he uh, raises himself and suspends himself above his aide we also see that same kind of suspension after the gas poison incident happens but Mm -hmm. this time he's kind of like very very weak he's like kind of like huddle in the corner like on the ceiling basically like oh my god i'm almost about to die (laughs) so it's just kind of it's very interesting for that character because he's supposed to be like yes i'm i'm strong i'm Mm -hmm. you know this evil guy but then at the same time he's also afraid of like death or yeah. afraid of losing like money or wealth basically yeah.
1: it's very fitting for his character I feel like all the choices for his character it makes sense to me you know he's a gluttonous type of guy he's a greedy guy he he wants life you know he wants to preserve his own life at whatever cost so
2: mm-hmm.
1: yeah I'm trying to think what other thoughts I'm that stand out for me but like I said, yeah, they're they're all they're all super. It's just hard to come out of this movie and like not be awed by all of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think for me, there's another shot that I super like where they're they're on the helicopter and they're flying away. It's from from the scene where the the worm comes out for the first time and eats swallows up the harvester, um, and yeah, they're I, flying away. Yeah,
0: yeah, I think that, that one was like one of the well-known uh shots and like a bunch of the trailers that they were trying to market at this and it's kind of like the scene where paul is still kind of like outside of the helicopter but he's being held by gurney and as like they fly away like they see the sandworm like take over the harvest uh, machine yeah there's like so many like shots are just kind of like oh my god like this is like really cool and kind of like that, the one shot where you know the invasion is happening and then you mm-hmm. they're outside and it's like just like everything is happening like chaos is all over the place but at the same time it's like still beautiful and it's kind of like that ironic thing that oh it's chaos and this is like violence and war But at the same time, it's, like, still beautiful to look at.
1: Totally.
0: I'm really glad that Greg uh, won for Best Cinematographer for this film. I look forward to uh, the second part. Um, I heard, based on what Greg said in interviews, that he says that the next one is going to be, like, even better. So, fingers crossed. (laughs) Wow. Yeah,
1: Yeah. I don't even know how they could improve that much. I mean, I should probably finish the book and see. <laughs> well, maybe not, because I don't know. I It always feels like when you read a book, you won't like the movie as much. So.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I'm kind of like those like people that like to read the book first before watching it. Mm-hmm. But I'm also reading like a bunch of other crime novels right now. So I don't have time to read Dune right now. But yeah, I I totally understand that though it would be great to like read the book and then watch the film. There are just times where you just kind of want to watch the film first before reading it. And I I think I agree with Greg on this, where you don't want to be biased or kind of limit yourself Mm -hmm. because that's what he said, I believe, for um, I think it was like the documentary for Foxcatcher where he was like, well, I didn't want to watch that because I didn't want to limit myself into the shots that I would be making for the film. I think that this is the type of film that you don't really need to read the book. A lot of the war terms, like all the like weird terms, it does get explained in the film, but it's not so much where it's just almost like them saying like, oh yeah, so Arrakis is this, like it kind of goes through layers like oh arrakis is like a spice planet and you know there's freemans but they introduce it throughout the film i really like it
1: i liked it too i think i liked it a little bit more my first time that i saw it i don't know why it just felt more immersive in the theater than uh than at home maybe that's why but this was your first time right no this is
0: um this is my second time my first time I watched it with my dad and Miro when I I think it was like in December during Christmas break so we watched it though we watched it on like direct tv like I still got the experience although it would be super great if I watched it in theaters but you know I was still like hesitant because of like COVID was still happening and you know mask requirements and such so yeah it would be great if they re-release it kind of like what they did with like Batman uh The Dark Knight Rises where yeah. they played the first two films before the premiere so hopefully maybe they'll do that where they'll show the first film and then they'll show the second film like during midnight premiere or something i would I'm watch sure that
1: yeah i'm sure they will mhm then you'd be in the theater for like 10 hours, though.
0: <laughs> you know, I think it's worth it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but be, yeah. yeah, do you have any other thoughts or, you know, anything you want to talk about?
1: Um, I would definitely recommend this movie if you haven't seen it. I don't know. I feel like you and I are kind of like a little bit more nerdy than the <laughs> general audience. I'm just curious to know, like, what... My, i'm just waiting to hear what my sister thinks who who's like more you know not as of not as into film just to just to get their perspective because i wonder if the film is like if it's still interesting to people who don't watch a ton of movies so
0: yeah i mean for me like with my dad and my brother they're kind of like also film nerds or like sci-fi nerds so i don't think that they're the best person to talk to in terms of like what do they think about the film Mm -hmm. i think i would have to get like just complete random stranger that doesn't (laughs) watch like you know films or are in the entertainment industry to ask some but yeah yeah maybe i'll ask roberto who knows (laughs) (laughs) and roberto if you are listening to this please like you know tell me like the next time i see you on what you thought about this film that is it for this episode you can follow us on instagram at j a n d m underscore podcast oscar do you have any plugins or
1: um just my instagram i guess Uh, i put a lot of my work up there and and a lot of BTS and stuff that I work on. Uh, so follow me at OJESS15. Uh, yeah.
0: Cool. Uh, yeah. And if you like this episode, please write and review us on Apple Podcast. And hopefully, like, I'll get on, like, a regular schedule and go back to hopefully, like, once a week. I'm trying. Just like Amber Heard's um, attorneys, I am trying.
2: <laughs> <laughs> For sure.
0: But yes, thank you again for listening and we hope you come back next week. And then I feel that for the next um, episode for the Greg Fraser, I feel like that we can go to the Batman, the Robert Pattinson film. Yeah,
1: that's great. Yeah, I'm super yeah. down.
0: Cool. Awesome. But yeah, thank you again and hope you come next week. Bye.
1: Bye.